Please welcome back to Summit Park from Southern Missouri Youth Ministries, Austin Westlake. That is absolutely unnecessary, absolutely unnecessary, but uh, it is an incredible honor uh, to be with you today. My family and I have been looking forward to this for a long time, and uh, I just want to say, first and foremost, welcome to the very first week of summer at Summit Park, and I also want to say welcome to those of you who are watching from South Campus. You're tuning in. Make some noise if you're at the South Campus. Come on, Southside, make some noise. And also, those of you who are watching online, maybe you're watching in a living room or a bedroom, or maybe you're in the kitchen, you're still eating breakfast because for some reason you just woke up, but you're joining us online. We are so grateful that you have joined us today. I believe that this is a great place to come to church. You made a great decision by attending Summit Park Church this morning. And the reason why I think you, you made a great decision is because I believe, first and foremost, that the hand of the Lord is on this house. That God's hand is on this place. It's on the leadership of this house. He is moving. His Holy Spirit is moving through this church in this community. But also, this is a great church because you have incredible, incredible leaders, incredible pastors. Can we make some noise for Pastors Scott and Jen Obrimsky? Come on, Southside, make some noise. If you're online, clap your hands for our pastors. We are so grateful for them and the leadership team that they have established here. They are just some of the best, some of the best of the best, and we're just so grateful for them. Before I jump into my message this morning, I believe that the Lord put a very specific word on my heart for this church, this house, uh, this community of faith, and also for the leadership of this house. And the word is this. I believe that this church and your leadership is about to, and maybe already has, stepped into a season during which you will be moving forward in the unforced rhythms of grace. Scripture talks about that in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 through 30, the unforced rhythms of grace. And essentially what that means is that God is going to give favor on this house. He's going to give favor to the leadership of this house. And I don't think it's a favor that can be forced by man, but it's a favor that can only be bestowed by God. And if you have called this place your church home, or maybe you're watching, considering calling this place your church home, and maybe you've just been forcing your faith, you feel like your life has been forced, your relationships have been forced, maybe your faith has just, it's been forced, maybe you're considering taking a step back from church, let me encourage you to lean into this community of faith because I believe that God is going to pour out an anointing and a favor to move this church forward in unforced rhythms of grace. And I don't know about you, but that's something I want to be a part of. So lean into what God is doing here because it's not an accident that he has you in this church during this season. And that's going to lead us into what I believe God's put on my heart for the church this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four this morning. It's, it's right after Matthew chapter three. It's in the New Testament. I promise you it's in there. Maybe some of you haven't opened the Bible in, in a little while. It's in there, I promise you. Matthew chapter four is there. And uh, as was mentioned earlier, I have the honor of being the district youth director uh, for the Southern Missouri District of the Assemblies of God. That's a really long title for basically just a youth pastor that gets to help youth pastors and youth ministries all around the state. And so we get to host youth conferences and youth camps. Your students from this church actually attended our youth camp recently, had an incredible time. And 
We, we love what we get to do, but I say we because I don't do that alone. There's no way I could do that alone because half the time I don't even know what day it is. I have an amazing family who helps me, my wife, number one. We can put a picture of my family up there. Um, for those of you who don't know us or aren't familiar, that's my amazing family, my wife, Lauren. Love her so very much. Like I said, she helps me keep my head on straight. Wouldn't know what day it is without her. And I just love her. She's the real MVP. She's here this morning with us. And then right there in the middle, that's my son, Jude. Um, he is four years old. He is adorable, but that boy needs Jesus, okay? Like he needs, trust me, he needs the Lord to do a work in his heart, okay? He is a wild man. He's a very good kid, so don't get it twisted. He's, he's very well behaved most of the time, but he needs the Lord to, to move on his behalf because he's a wild man. And then there in the middle is our daughter, Quinn. She is our newest addition. She's absolutely beautiful, the joy of our life. And some nights she doesn't let us sleep a whole lot. Uh, mainly my wife. She, she has to stay up with Quinn often, but we can just go to the next picture and look at this face. When you wake up and that's what she looks like, like, what do you, I mean, you can't even be mad. Like, like that's, just, I mean, she's just beautiful. I mean, has me wrapped around her finger and uh, we, we love her so very much. And uh, I, uh, I enjoy being a parent. I don't know if there's any parents in the room. Raise your hand. If you're, if you're a parent, raise your hand. Let me see. Raise it up high. Come on, be proud. That's how I know your parents, because you're, like, too tired to even raise your hand right now. Like, some of your hands were, like, quaking on the way up because you're so exhausted. Um, I, love, I love being a parent. My wife and I, we love parenthood. But something that no one prepared us for was just how difficult it would be to travel with small children. That is just, that's not for the faint of heart, okay? That is like an Olympic event. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but it is a challenge. Some of you who don't have children yet, just wait, okay? The Lord's going to bless you. But we, we were traveling on our way back to Missouri. We were getting ready to get on a plane, and man, we had got our boarding passes printed. We showed up to the airport plenty early, got our boarding passes printed out. Uh, we had checked our big bags. We had gone through security. With that's, that's an entirely different story in and of itself, going through security, but we made it through security. We had gotten all the way to the gate that we were going to be flying out of. Um, I had got my Starbucks. My son had spilled my Starbucks on the ground. Um, I was trying to keep my son from eating the gum that is underneath the armrests on the chairs in the terminal. Come on, some of you know that life all too well. That's, that's just reality, right? The Instagram pictures don't show them pulling out all the gum and the, the stuff. But we were there. We had gone through the gauntlet. We're getting ready to get on the plane, and we got up to our gate. And the gate agent, when she saw us, she scanned our boarding passes. She said, uh, what is that? I said, what? She said, that. In your hand, what is that? I said, oh, this? I said, it's a stroller. She said, yeah, you, you can't take that on the plane. I said, no, we, we can. See, it's a travel stroller. See, it fits in this nice little bag, this, this nice little backpack. It goes, it goes on our back. I can hold it by the handle. Like, it's all good. It's FAA approved. Like, this thing is good. It fits in the overhead compartment. We're good. She said, that's great. You're not bringing that on the plane. You cannot fly with that. I said, well, we, we actually fly pretty consistently, and we actually fly with your airline often. So, I mean, we've taken it plenty of times. I think we can take it. She said, listen. You're either going to get fined, and you're not going to be able to fly, or you're going to have to check that bag. That thing is not, that's not, not coming on the plane the way you have it. You need to go over there to the ticket agent, and you need to check that bag. I said, are you serious? She said, I'm not playing. You need to go do that right now. I said, okay. So we went over to this other desk. It was the ticket agent, and I held up the bag, and I said, excuse me, I, I need to check this bag. And the man behind the counter, he looked at me, and he said, you need to check the bag. I said, yeah, the, the gate agent said I need to check it. He said, why do you need to check it? You should not have to check that bag. I said, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. Like, 
You understand me. This is good. At this moment, I thought that we were connecting. I thought that we were going to form an alliance. And I really believe that he and I were going to go over there and have a conversation with Lisa and convince her to let us take the travel stroller onto the plane. That's the way I saw this thing playing out. About two minutes later, I had a red tag on the bag because this dude made me check the bag anyways. Apparently, she was the boss. And so I had to check the bag. We go to get on the plane. I'm getting ready to get on the jetway. I kind of sarcastically raise the bag, and I, I show her that I've got it. Here it is. We walk down the jetway, which is just a skywalk that leads you onto the plane. And if you've ever done this before, you know that at the bottom of the jetway, there's a pile of bags that are late-checked bags. You've probably seen it before. And I saw the pile on my way down the jetway. I knew it was there. I knew I had a bag that needed to go there. As I got closer, I saw it looming. Okay, we're, we're closing in now. There it is. I saw the pile. When I walked past the pile, I reached the bag out as if I was going to put the bag on the pile. And something, I don't know what, kind of came over me. And for some reason, the bag just didn't leave my hand. But instead, it went on my shoulder and onto the plane with me. We get to our seat, we put it in the overhead compartment, it fits, because it's supposed to. We sit down in our seats, buckle our seat belts. No sooner did we get sat down and turned around in our seats than did a stewardess come and halt the boarding for the entire plane, come down to our seat, reach up, grab the bag out of the overhead compartment, turn around and walk off of the plane with our bag in her hand without saying a word to us. This was not a fun moment for us. If you've ever traveled with small children, you know that by this point, you're exhausted. Uh, you're just ready to be home. Everything seems to frustrate you. And we were frustrated, no doubt about it. I honestly felt like we were about two seconds away from being one of those viral news stories that comes up on your phone. Missouri couple thrown off of Southwest Airlines flight for fighting with stewardess over travel stroller. Like... We were right there, okay? I like to think that my wife and I love God and love people, but it was challenged that, that day in that moment, okay? I don't know what happened, but we were frustrated. And the reason why we were frustrated is because we had to check this bag at the gate. And that messes with you a little bit because what happens when you check a bag at the gate is you have to let go of something that you had every intention of holding on to. But something that we need to realize when traveling is that there will be moments where the things that we are carrying cannot go with us where we're going. So we've got to be willing to let some things go, either permanently or temporarily, in confidence that we will have them if and when we actually need them. I want to preach a message this morning, and the title of the message is this, Checked at the Gate. Checked at the Gate. And the reason why I want to preach this message and feel like this was on my heart for today is because I believe that we have been in a very unique season as a city, as a nation, and as a world. But I also believe that God is about to do a very unique thing by way of expanding his church to a degree and in a manner that none of us have ever seen before. And I really believe that God has things he wants this church to do. He has places that he wants us to go. But church, we will never get where God wants us to go until we're willing to let go of some of the things that God's asked us to let go of so we can pick up the cross that Jesus is calling us to carry. We've got to check some things at the gate. If we're going to get where God wants us to go, we got to let some things go. And I don't know what that means for each and every one of us. It's something different probably. For some of us, it, it might mean that we need to check our time and our talent at the gate. Uh, because 
maybe we've been using our time and our talent for no other reason than to build our own brand and to gain personal influence and personal gain. Maybe we've been using our time and talents that God gave us in the first place selfishly, and God might be asking us to lay those things at his feet, believing that if we need them in our life, he will give them back to us. Might be time to start giving our time to something greater than ourselves, jumping onto a team and serving here, reaching out to the community. Might be time to check our time and our talents at the gate. For others of us, maybe it's our finances. Maybe in this last season, rather than us managing our money, our money has been managing us. And rather than trusting God with what he's given us, we've tried to be uh, the owner and the manager of it all on our own. But God might want to remind some of us today that he can do so much more with our money than we ever could do with our money. And it might be time to let it go, laying it at his feet, believing that if we need it, God's going to provide because he is our provision. He is the one who comes through when nothing and no one else can. Might be time to check the finances at the gate, trusting God with it. Maybe for the first time or first time in a long time. Uh, for others of us, and this is not a very fun one to preach about, but it might be time to check our dreams at the gate. Yes, I believe that God speaks in dreams. Yes, I believe that God gives us vision. God puts dreams in our hearts, absolutely. But I also think that there are moments for many of us where the dream in our heart is a me dream. It's not a God dream. And God doesn't want us to have that dream because he knows that dream would turn into a nightmare and would actually derail us from the destiny that God has for our life. So it might be time to give him the dream in our heart, believing that his dream for our lives is so much better than anything we could dream of for ourselves, fully trusting him and his plan for our life. It might be time to put that plan or that dream down, believing that God's got something greater and something more uniquely fitted to us and where he's calling us to go. And for others of us, maybe the thing that we need to let go of, it's not anything we need to check at the gate, but it's something we actually need to throw away in the trash before we ever get on the jetway. Maybe it's a secret sin. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a lack of integrity at work when working with finances or working with other people. Whatever it is, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I believe that there are some things that we've been carrying that simply cannot go with us where we're going because God is taking us to new territory and we don't need anything weighing us down that wasn't supposed to be there. And I really believe this, that the difference between those of us who will get where God's calling us to go and those of us who won't is our willingness to let go of what God is calling us to let go of so we can pick up what he's calling us to carry. Checked at the gate. We, we've got to check some things at the gate. We're in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We're going to start in verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Uh, Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. This is a very short passage of scripture in the meta-narrative that is the Bible, but it's a very profound one because this is the moment where Jesus was calling his first disciples. He was calling people to be a part of his team. He was picking people to help him build the church and carry out his mission on this earth. This was a profound moment in history. Jesus was choosing his team. It was huge. 
But it's important for us to understand the context of the moment as well. Because things in the life of Jesus had started to shift. Uh, the heat had been turned up. The pressure had been put on in a, in a more severe way. Prior to this moment that we just read about, Jesus had a cousin named John the Baptist who had been put into prison, falsely accused and put into prison. And Jesus, he knew everything because he was fully God. And so in that moment when his cousin was falsely accused, he knew that he wasn't going to be coming out of prison, but he would live out his days in prison and he would be beheaded. That's what Jesus knew because he knew the future. But Jesus was also fully man. And being fully man, it's safe to say he probably felt some of the things that any of us would have felt in that moment. He probably felt frustration. He probably felt sadness and anger. He was probably upset. He felt those things, no doubt. And the situation in his life, it had changed. The heat had been turned up. His situation had changed. But what we see in the life of Jesus is that even though his situation had changed, the mission had not changed. Jesus, he was still sent to this earth to testify to the truth. Jesus was sent to this earth to pick followers and build his church and build his kingdom. And Jesus still came to this earth to die on a cross and go to a grave, but walk out of that grave fully alive after three days, defeating death, hell, and the grave. So even though the situation had changed, his mission had not changed. And church, if you haven't noticed in the past year and a half, our situation has changed drastically in our nation and around the world. But even though our situation has changed, our mission has not changed. We're still called to love our neighbor as ourself. We're still called to be a light in darkness. We're still called to help people find and follow Jesus. The mission hasn't changed. Even though the situation has, the mission has not it hasn't changed. And so Jesus, on mission, is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible tells us that Jesus saw two brothers. He looked up and he saw these two brothers. And he goes on to call them. But I want to focus on that word saw, that Jesus saw them. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, what you'll find is that over 40 times in the Gospels alone, in the, in the NIV, we read that Jesus, he notices something or he sees someone. He picks up on something. He has an awareness about him where he sees someone or notices something. Jesus had an acute awareness about him that was given to him by the Holy Spirit. But what I love about Jesus, which we also see in the story of his life, is that Jesus was not just a God of awareness. He was a God of action. What that means is that when Jesus became aware of something, he also took action and he did something about what he saw. And Jesus reminds us of something very important, and it's this, that the Holy Spirit never gives us awareness on accident. He always gives us awareness on purpose. Whenever God makes us aware of something, it's not an accident. He does it on purpose. He reveals something to us so we can do something about it. I mentioned earlier that my son Jude is a, a wild man. Uh, one of the things that he's really good at is uh, destroying my house. Listen, I can turn around and make him some chocolate milk, and by the time I've turned back around, it looks like the Battle of Armageddon is going on in my living room. Like, he is, I'm serious, just real quick and destroy the house. And lately, I've been trying to help him understand the importance of cleaning up his messes. Uh, it's not going great, but, but we're getting there. And so what he'll do is he'll get out his Hot Wheels cars or some other toy. And he'll be playing with his Hot Wheels cars. And, 
he'll play with them for probably five to seven minutes. They're all dumped out there on the ground on the floor. And after that, he goes and grabs a, a bucket of action figures, and he gets ready to dump the action figures out. And I stop him. I say, now, Jude, hold on, buddy. Relax, chill. Just, just hold it. You see all these cars on the ground? I'm going to need you to clean these up before you dump out the action figures. I'm like, I need you to clean up mess number one before you make mess number two. Can you, can you do that for me, please? Is there any way you can do that? And he, he does this thing that makes me feel very respected in my own home. He looks down at the mess that he's just made. Then he looks up at me, and then he proceeds to dump out the action figures right in front of my face. Just right in front of my face. And I get so frustrated when he does this because I'm trying to teach him, you've got to clean up one mess before you make another. But in my frustration, God has reminded me that what my son does to his earthly father, I do to my heavenly father all the time. Because my heavenly father will give me awareness. He'll make me aware of a situation. And rather than meeting that awareness with action, I meet it with indifference or ignorance. And I go about my life doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way that I want to do it. But if I'm going to be the man that God has called me to be, if we're going to be the church and the individuals that God has called us to be, we've got to meet the awareness with action so that when the Holy Spirit shows shows us something, we do something. We don't just stand idly by and watch life happen, but we get involved in what's around us so that when the Holy Spirit makes us aware of something at work, we do something about it. When the Holy Spirit makes us aware of something in our household, we do something about it. When the Holy Spirit makes us aware of a need in our community, we show up and we help give out backpacks because we're doing something about what God showed us. I really believe that God wants to do miracles in and through your life. I don't just say that. We don't just say that here at this church. We really believe it. But I think that the miracles God wants to do in our life and us seeing those miracles, it's, it's contingent on our stewardship of the awareness that God gives us. What that means is that what we do with what God shows us matters. How we respond to the awareness God gives us, it matters. How are we responding to the awareness that the Holy Spirit has given us? For those of you at South Campus, those of you watching online, how were you responding to what the Holy Spirit showed you last week and last month and what the Holy Spirit is even showing you this morning? How are you responding to what God is showing you? Because how we respond to what God shows us, it has eternal impact. Jesus, he was a God of action, not just awareness. And so the Bible tells us that he sees these two brothers, but that he also says something to them. He said, come and follow me. Come follow me. Fellas, come on, come follow me. I think if there had been ladies in the boat, he also would have said, ladies, come follow me. Fellas, come follow me. i got a plan for you. I've got something great for you. Come and follow me. Now, in our culture, we're we're used to this. We're used to this moment where the, the leader reaches out to the follower. We are used to coaches recruiting players We are used to colleges recruiting students. We we are used to bosses recruiting employees. We are used to this. But in their culture, in ancient rabbinic culture, the norm would have been for someone who wanted to follow after another, the follower would choose the person that they wanted to follow after and make a decision, I want to be like you. I want to be close to you. I want to know you. I want to do life with you. I want to be in fellowship or fellowship with you. I'm choosing you. I want to follow you. So the fact that Jesus called them out of their boat 
It meant that Jesus flipped the script because rather than the follower choosing the leader, we see that the leader chose the followers. And he said, I want you to be a part of my team. I want you to be a part of my family. I want you to be a part of the greatest work in time or eternity. I want you to help me build the local church. Jesus chose them. And just as Jesus chose them, church, Jesus has chosen you for such a time as this. It is not an accident that you were on this earth during this season. God had it all planned out. Before you were ever on this earth, you were already on God's mind. Before he ever formed you, he knew you and planned you for such a time as this. He chose you. And in the past year and a half, there's probably a lot of us who feel as though we've been forgotten by God. We feel as though we've been an afterthought for God and that he's not mindful of us. Well, let me remind you, you have not been forgotten because you are not God's forgotten. You are God's favored and you're not his rejected. You're his anointed and you are not God's mistake, but you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the good work which he has prepared in advance for you to do. You were made for this and born for this moment. He chose you. He chose your family to live in that neighborhood. He chose this church to be in this community. He chose the pastors of this church to lead this community. Been chosen by God. Jesus chose these men. And notice what he says. He says, come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, culture will make you fishers of men. He does not say, your job will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say success or a lot of money will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say influence or social media will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say government will make you fishers of men. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. You know what that meant for the disciples? It meant that they had to look to Jesus. It meant that they could not look to the left or to the right. It meant that if they were going to live the life that Jesus was calling them to live, they had to look to the one who was actually calling them to live it. They had to focus on Jesus because their focus would determine their future. What they looked at mattered. What they focused on mattered. Because in this journey of faith, our gaze, it guides us. It matters what we focus on. Jesus wasn't joking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, where he said, The eyes are the lamp of the body. If a man's eyes are healthy, his whole body will be full of light. He wasn't just joking when he said that. What it means is that what we focus on matters because our gaze is going to guide us. Last year when the uh, stay-at-home order first went into effect, I, uh, I realized pretty quickly, early on, like two days in, that I was gonna go absolutely insane if I did not start doing something active. Like two days in, like I'm already going stir crazy. I had no idea what was in store. But two days in, I'm like, I gotta do something. And so I started running, like outside, for fun, in my neighborhood. Some of you are like, bro, what is wrong with you? You're sick, you're a sick man. I started running and I enjoyed it. I wouldn't consider myself a real runner. I don't wear short enough shorts to be a real runner. Like, come on, we have all seen the ones who are running on the side of the road, not even using the sidewalk. For some reason, those shorts are, nobody should be wearing those shorts, okay? If you're a real runner in here, I am sorry. Come back next week, someone else will be preaching. <laughs> but if you have a problem, just email Pastor Scott Obrimsky at Summit Park Church. Not a real runner. 
but I, I enjoy it. I, I like it. And so I started watching and trying to see what world-class runners do when they run. I'm like, what, what do they do? How do they move? Well, they move very fast, a lot faster than me, a whole lot faster. But if, if you watch their movements, you can see their legs and their gait, their stride is just, man, a big stride. Their feet are hardly on the ground. Like, they try to have as little impact as they can. Their feet are just moving so fast. Their arms are moving back and forth at an incredible pace. Because if you look at some of the statistics, it'll show that most of the speed that someone produces is actually produced in their arms when they're running. So they're moving like crazy. But if you look at their head and their eyes, their head is completely still, and their eyes are looking straight ahead the entire time. They're not moving. They're looking at the horizon. And the reason for this is because there have been studies done to try and find the connection, the relationship between posture and performance. And what the studies have shown is that the average human head weighs about 12 pounds when sitting on top of the neck and the shoulders. Weighs about 12 pounds. So because of our relationship with gravity when we're in motion, for every one inch that the human head is tilted forward when someone is running, it actually adds an extra 10 pounds of pressure to the neck and the shoulders and the upper back. So what you have is you've got a lot of inexperienced runners who get so caught up looking down at their own feet that they end up carrying a bunch of weight that they were never designed to carry in the first place, and it hinders them from getting where they were trying to go when they were trying to get there. But if they would get their head up and look to the horizon, they would be so much more efficient because their gaze guides them. And it's not just true for a distance runner. It's true in this marathon called life as we're following Jesus. We've got to let our gaze guide us to the one who has called us to the greater things ahead, to the one who's called us to move forward, to the one who's calling us on. We've got to look to Jesus. If we want to live the life that Jesus is calling us to live, we've got to look to the one who's calling us to live it. We've got to look to him. I love what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Church, I'm telling you, God has something greater ahead than you could ever imagine, but there's no way we're going to get there unless we look to Jesus first. What are we focusing on? What are we gazing at? Because whatever we're gazing at is going to guide us in that direction. We've got to look to Jesus. These disciples had to look to Jesus. Nothing and no one else could do for them what Jesus could do. Nothing and no one else can do for you and in your life that which Jesus can do. No one can lead you to where you're destined to go like Jesus Christ himself. We've got to look to Jesus. And notice what Jesus says to them. He says, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. We, if you grew up in church, have a context for that. We, we understand that. It makes a little bit of sense. We know a little bit about what Jesus meant when he said that. When Jesus said that to these disciples, no one had ever said it before. It hadn't been written before. It wasn't a popular statement. These disciples had no context for what Jesus was trying to explain to them and for where Jesus was calling them to go. They, they didn't fully understand what Jesus was asking of them. They couldn't have. But what's amazing 
is that even though they did not understand it, they still let go of their nets and they obeyed him. Even though they didn't understand it completely, they didn't understand what they'd have to go through and the ridicule they would take, they didn't understand the kind of deaths that they would one day die, they didn't understand some of the things they'd have to walk through, but they still obeyed, leaving their nets, their fishing business, their income, checking those things at the gate because they knew that Jesus was going to take them somewhere that they simply could not get on their own. And something deep within them knew this is right. He is the one that we should be following. They didn't understand it, but they still obeyed. It's important for us to get this, that understanding is going to come. When God speaks to us, understanding might come later. Understanding can wait. Obedience cannot wait. Understanding can come later. Comprehension can come later, but complying with what God's asking us to do, that cannot wait because some of the opportunities that God has for you, they have a shelf life. And God's calling us into something great now. Even though they didn't understand, they had to obey. I'll never forget being 16 years old. I was at a, a large church conference in Indianapolis, Indiana, and my dad is a pastor. My grandfather is a pastor. My aunts and uncles are pastors. Grew up in church, spent more time in church than anybody would ever want to. And I went to this massive church conference for our fellowship, an Assemblies of God conference. They had an adult service and a youth service. Youth service had thousands of students in it. And I remember standing in that room, not raising my hands, not worshiping, not wanting to worship the Lord. I was not there to, to meet with God at all. But God was there to meet with me. And I remember standing in that room, surrounded by all these other teenagers from around the country who were worshiping God, and all I was thinking about was what we were going to eat after service because I was hungry and I was ready to go. But the Holy Spirit started speaking to me. God started saying some, some things to me, started putting some things on my heart and in a matter of a few minutes, I started raising my hands and surrendering to God in worship. And in those moments, the Lord began to put a call to ministry on my life. He began to speak things to me that I'd never heard, or at least hadn't heard since I was a little kid. Maybe I had forgotten. But he was reminding me that he had a plan for my life, and that he had called me into ministry, and that he wanted me to be a pastor, and he wanted me to lead the next generation. And that he had a plan for my life. There were things he wanted me to do and places he wanted me to go. And it was in that moment of surrender, even though I could not have possibly understood what God was calling me to, I said, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I will do. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Whatever it is that you want me to do, I'm going to do it. Absolutely. I had plans. I wanted to go to college in Florida, had a specific college I wanted to go to. I wanted to open up my own store and do some cool things. But I put all of that down that night, believing that what God had for me was so much better than anything that I had for me. And I said, Lord, I'm all in, whatever it is, wherever you want me to go. Was I perfect after that moment? Absolutely not. I probably made more mistakes after that moment than I had before then, but I could not deny the moment that I had with the Lord, and I knew that he had called me in the deepest part of who I was, even though I didn't understand the calling completely, I knew he called me, and I had to obey. I didn't understand, but I had to obey. And there's a much greater example of that than myself or your leadership here, your pastors here, as great as they are. 
and it's Jesus Christ himself. He checked some things at the gate. He put some things down for what his heavenly father was calling him to do. The night before Jesus was crucified, he took 11 of his disciples. One of them had already deserted him. He took them across the Kidron Valley there in Jerusalem. He went to the Mount of Olives into a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. When he got to the garden, he stopped at the gate. He left 11 of them there at the entrance to the garden. He took three deeper into the garden with him. After he went into the garden, he then stopped, and he went 25 more paces by himself, fell to the ground, and began to call out to his heavenly Father. And to paraphrase what he said, Jesus essentially said, Lord, heavenly Father, if there's any other way to pay for the sins of all humanity than to go to the cross, let's, let's go that route. If we can accomplish it through any other method, let's do that. However, not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want, God, but what you want. And it was in that moment Jesus, scholars believe, felt the weight of all the world's sin resting on his shoulders in that moment. And he began checking some things at the gate, checking his preference at the gate for what his heavenly father had. Soon a detachment of soldiers would come into the garden. They would arrest him and lead him away bound. Jesus checked his freedom at the gate. Jesus would then be led to the house of the high priest, and even though Jesus is the perfect high priest, the good high priest, the heavenly high priest, he checked his priesthood at the gate and allowed himself to be questioned by the earthly high priest on that night. From there, he went to the home of Pontius Pilate, the palace, the Roman governor. Pontius Pilate had Jesus come and stand at the palace on a stone floor called Gabbatha. And Pontius Pilate sat in the judge's seat and ultimately gave out the death sentence to Jesus. Jesus was the righteous judge, yet he allowed himself to be judged by a sinful earthly judge. He checked his authority at the gate. Then Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, had a crown of thorns jammed onto his head, checking his kingship at the gate. Then Jesus would go to the cross and be nailed to a wooden cross, giving his very life, then going to the tomb for three days, but walking out of it fully alive on the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. He checked so many things on the, to the, at the gate on the way to, to death. He checked it all, checking his very life. And Jesus didn't check those things at the gate so he could get where he wanted to go. Jesus checked them at the gate so we could get where God was calling us to go. And we could live the life that we were always meant to live. And we could be in eternity with our heavenly father in right relationship with him. Jesus checked it at the gate so his plan could be fulfilled. I think we've got to check some things at the gate if we're going to go where God's calling us to go. There's some things that need to be put down. Some of us feel as though God's been holding out on us. I don't think God's been holding out on us. I think we've been holding on to things that we shouldn't be holding on to. And we feel like God's holding back his blessings. No, it's not that God's holding back the blessing. It's that we're holding on to things more tightly than the one who made them in the first place. You stand to your feet all over this place. I think for a lot of us, Holy Spirit's been speaking something different. The voice of God has been saying something different to us, something unique. The Holy Spirit can do that. He can say something different to every person in the room. I believe he's been doing that today. Some of us know exactly what it is we need to let go of. No question. And understand this, nobody's perfect. We're all very, very far from perfect. We've all, including myself, got things that I need to let go of. 
if I'm going to move forward in, into God's plan for my life. No one is really exempt from that. But I do think there are some of us in this room who maybe the thing that we've never checked at the gate is, is our heart, our soul, because we've never made a decision for Christ. We've never made a decision to follow Jesus. We've never checked our life at the gate, allowing Jesus to lead our life. And in just a moment, you're going to have the opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior, making a decision to follow him, checking your life at the gate for the new life in Christ. And something that we all need to understand is that God loves us more than anyone he's ever had to love or as much as anyone he's ever had to love. We're as important to God as anyone who's ever lived. And if we'd have been the only one that sinned, Jesus would have come and died just for us. If we're the only one that sinned, maybe you're watching online and you feel like and you've done things that no one else has done or you're too far gone, you are one conversation away from being right with God today. If you're watching at South Campus and you feel like God, God can't possibly use you or God can't possibly live on the inside of you. He absolutely can and he wants to. And if you'd have been the only one that sinned, he would have come and died on the cross just for you. That's who he is. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes all across this place. Just a moment by a show of hands, you're gonna have the opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus, accepting him as the Savior that he is, accepting his love and his grace and his mercy. I'm going to count to three, every head bowed, every eye closed, and you're in this room and you want to make a decision to check your life at the gate and live the life that God's calling you to live and have you put your hand up all across this place. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he died on a cross for you. Three, he walked out of the grave for you. If that's you, awesome. Awesome. You can just put your hand up. Awesome. Awesome. If you're watching online, the Lord can be speaking to you right now in your living room or in your bedroom, in your kitchen, in your house. I believe he's speaking to you. You can give your heart to Jesus. Make a decision for Christ right now. If you're at South Campus, I believe the Lord is speaking to you right now. Saying, I want to lay my life down. I want to check my life at the gate for new life in Christ. Anybody else here at the North Campus, all across this room, want to make a decision to follow Jesus today? Just by a show of hands. Awesome. Awesome. With every head bowed, every eye closed, we're going to pray a prayer together. I'm going to have you repeat after me. I believe these moments are best lived out in the context of community. Everybody in the room is going to pray this prayer surrounding those who are making the best decision of their life. Pray with me if you would. Say, dear Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Change my heart. Change my mind. Change my direction. I want to be a follower of you all the days of my life. And Jesus, give me the strength to let go of some things that have been holding me back. Help me carry the cross that you've called me to carry. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Can we celebrate with those who just made the best decision of their entire life? Come on, to give their heart to Jesus. Making a decision to follow him with their life. 
And we're going to enter into a moment of worship. And let me challenge you to worship the Lord, hear from the Holy Spirit, because I believe he wants to speak some things to you, even in these closing minutes, about some things that don't need to go with you where God is taking you.